0: I remember just thinking, um, I don't want to live anymore. When I was like, you know, 17, 18 is when I first started drinking. I remember I told my mom and dad for the last time, like, hey, I need help and I actually mean it this time. That's for those of you listening, whether you're a resident of the program, whether you're a family member, a current or a future supporter. But life today is good. When I was seeing it work in other people as well as myself, something just changed. I've got a little over five years of sobriety. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. All right, and if you're just joining us, welcome back to the Hope Dealers podcast. We are so excited to be here today. Um, I am your host, Sean Fitzpatrick, and before I introduce today's guest, I just want to um, tell everyone thank you so much for listening. It's been um, such a joy to have brought this thing to video, um, as well as keeping it on Apple and Spotify. This will be um, our final episode um, just for a little bit, <laughs> I should probably preface there. We will be taking a little bit of a break um, as we head into the event season for Hope is Alive. That is a very, very busy time. and uh, But not to worry, we will be back um, this summer with a, a whole new season. And um, we're already hard at work at it, but just wanted to give everyone a heads up uh, to keep on sharing this, keep on listening. And um, yeah, we will be back with more soon. But today... I'm joined with a good friend of mine, Mr. Matthew Shane. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on today,
1: man. I really yeah. do appreciate it.
0: Yeah, glad to have you on. It's uh, it's been a long time coming. You're uh, you're a staff member at Hope is Alive.
1: Yeah, I've been on staff um, since July of 21. Uh, did a little bit of interning before that to yeah. kind of learn the ropes and all that. But uh, yeah, I've been been here for a little bit. What do you do for Hope is Alive? So I am on the recruiting and outreach team. So considered a recruiting and outreach coordinator. Um, Some of my responsibilities are to uh, find reputable treatment centers and detox facilities to partner with, Um, also meet with the case managers. Uh, That way we can be used as a referral source um, from people coming out of treatment. But it's also good to have relationships with other staff members at those places uh, for being able to refer in to them um, just because we know that not everybody that is looking at sober living is necessarily ready uh, for the strenuous task that's going to be at hand when they come into Hope is Alive. I mean, it is, it's a lot. And so we want to make sure that they're prepared and um, have a good foundation of sobriety somewhat before, you know, starting on that journey.
0: For sure. So it's good to, you know, like you said, be able to hand out those resources where they're needed, you know, maybe
1: in it might not always mean coming to us. Right. No, we, we, we work with other, you know, sober livings. Um, We try to have a, you know, an abundant, um, abundant resources available for people that may not um, necessarily be a good fit for Hope is Alive or are looking for something different or on medications that aren't allowed, but need to continue on that, that medication treatment. So, you know, we, we do look for other options um, and have those resources available um, in case, People that have applied for Hope is Alive need those other resources. Gotcha,
0: right on. And you're also a graduate. Yes, I graduated
1: program. in I want to say it was January of 22. So
0: yeah, you were sitting next to me when it happened. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: know. Remember that? I do. I remember that they. I thought that they had messed up on uh, the video, but there was just a little <laughs> bit of a glitch, and you had to run back there and fix it during your own graduation. Yeah, so.
0: that was. Uh, so for that was it's funny at. Like I've, I've said this before, if you go to a Hope is Live event of basically any kind, you'll see me um, floating around with an iPad or sitting in a booth, uh, you know, maintaining our audiovisual presence. And the night I graduated, obviously, I couldn't do that. Right. But I—it was funny. Was that day I had gotten up there to the community center that morning with the rest of the team that was going to be working that night, and I loaded all that content in, all of our pictures, our slideshows. Yeah everything for the graduation. And I was like, I, I was felt so good about it. I was like, I'm so ahead. Like, this is awesome. And they did, cause you sat, you were right after me. Right. And they did all my stuff. I did my speech. I sat down and then they just played the person that was after you. Yes. I, I do recall that. <laughs> I know you, were, <laughs> yeah. but I remember my mom not really knowing what was going on. All she, but she didn't realize that I was like frustrated because <laughs> Because they had skipped your stuff. Now, I will say, before I continue on, no one purposely skipped Matthew.
1: There was just a glitch. In well, the- I mean, I still have character defects, so that was not my <laughs> my first thought. Uh, my first thought was, like, I spent two and a half years in the program. I want my time. I want my slideshow. I want my slideshow. And I just remember my
0: mom said that she goes, I just, I couldn't tell if if you were friends with all the other people graduating because their slideshow would start and you had this frown on your face, <laughs> it was like, Oh no, 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 no. It was just anytime a slideshow started that wasn't Matthew's. I was like, Oh, um, but yeah, we, we, sometimes we love to have that control. Yeah. And we, I remember, I remember running back there finally and just being like, guys, what's going on? Let's do this. And uh, we, we, we
1: got you up there. We yeah. We've got it I, figured out. Like I said, I'd, I really do appreciate it because my, uh, my mom, my dad uh, my, my niece and my sister uh, my, my sister lives in Austin And so she had come um, Specifically for the graduation And I wanted to make sure that um, She got to enjoy the whole thing You know Yeah,
0: hold on one sec, sorry Robert I just, Things like dipping over here There
1: we go Ah, uh, there we go Okay Okay.
0: Um, all right. So, well, moving on from the reminiscence of our amazing graduation, um, you have a story that got you to this place, I and do. Um, I just wanted our viewers to hear that today. You know, hear about your journey, and hoping that it gives them some hope um, in their own journeys, wherever that may be. Whether you're the loved one of the addict, whether you are the person in this journey, so. Take us back a little bit. When would you say you first ran into
1: substance? Um, I'd say I first dabbled with anything. Um, I was at the lake with one of my buddies. Um, we were on the boat with his dad, and uh, his dad had offered me a beer. And, I mean, I'd never drank beer before that or any type of alcohol. And I can remember my my first Taste, I spit it out cause it was gross <laughs> and I just handed it back to him. Um, uh, so I, obviously I never thought I would have an issue with alcohol, but, um, there was another time, I think I was like 15 where, um, I was over at one of my buddy's houses. Um, we played football together and, um, he had had some weed and, uh, you know, peer pressure, it, it wasn't really something I was wanting to do, but I, in the moment I felt like there was peer pressure to do it and I wanted to be one of the cool kids, you know, cause this dude was popular and all that. And so, um, I tried it. Uh, I can't say that I didn't enjoy it. Um, you know, everything was, was really funny afterwards, but, um, I would say that's probably when, uh, my journey into, uh, the world of addiction began. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I dabbled with you know alcohol, pills, um, weed in high school, but you know, I'd never really consider myself a drug addict or an alcoholic at that point. I'd never really experienced something traumatic enough to, um, you know, take me past that imaginary line in the sand that once you cross, there's there's no going back. So right, and so. <clears throat>
0: Take, you know, take me through the area where it starts to kind of, maybe not necessarily be a full on problem, but there's like little hints that it could be a problem.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I continued to more so dabble with, um, alcohol while I was in college. Um, I can remember that, uh, You know, at first it was like, okay, I'll just, I'll just drink on the weekend. And then it was like during the week a little bit. So, you know, I would, I would make something to drink, put my headphones in, uh, I would record myself going over my notes. Um where there was going to be a test in a certain class. So I'd put the headphones in, listen to myself talking over the notes over and over and over while I, while I drank. And I thought it was being like really, really creative and smart, but, uh, (laughs) so much, lo and behold, it was just like creating a, a monster that would, you know, soon come through.
0: Yeah. Um, and so when does, when does things just start to take a turn?
1: Yeah. So, you know, when I go to treatment centers and detox facilities and I, and I share my story, um, I let people know that like drugs and alcohol are not my, my biggest issue. Sure. It's, you know, it starts with a validation, ah. the lack of self-esteem and worth. And, um, for me, you know, growing up, I was really good at sports. Um, I put all my time and energy and effort into being this, like this athlete, um, and it ended up paying off. Like I I ended up getting a scholarship for baseball, um, you know, to go into college and, um, you know, when you, when you put so much time, energy, and effort into something that you really love, it becomes your identity. Um, and sometimes you can forget that there's a world outside of that one thing. And so for me, whenever I was a senior in college, um, so actually let me go back a little bit. Sure. So, I went to two different junior colleges, but I ended up going to a four-year college in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, Bellhaven University, and ended up starting my my junior year. Did really good. Came back to Oklahoma City for the summer, got a job, played summer ball, and uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but during summer ball, I had ended up tearing my um, my labrum and shoulder cuff, and so I get back to school. We're going through spring training and. Um, I just didn't have any velocity on my throws. Uh, my arm was always hurting. And so we went and had, uh, an MRI done and it showed that there was pretty drastic tear in both my, my shoulder cuff and labrum and ended up having to have surgery. I went through a doctor that had done tons of major league guys. And, um, I thought, okay, well I'll have, I'll have surgery. It'll be fixed. And so that was not the case. Um, After the surgery, I was pretty much told that um, I was never going to play again. And for me, that was such a, like a gut shot because outside of being a, a baseball player, I didn't have an identity. Right. And so it was just that it was just that. And so my whole world came crashing down and that's like, I always make reference back to, to alcohol because my thing was, I know the effects that alcohol will have on me when I drink. And that's exactly why I picked it up very heavily after my, my surgery, because I didn't have to deal with anything in, in real life sober. Um, it was like a coping mechanism. So sure. If I was drunk enough or I was high enough, I didn't care and I didn't have to care.
0: Mm, wow. And so your baseball career is gone. Yeah. And it's like all of a sudden now what? Yeah. And is this when, you know, you just decide to adopt another identity,
1: another Persona. I think I was probably identity. Uh, uh, what's how do you say the word? Um, identityless for mm. the next fifteen years, and that's wow. how long I would spend in um, addiction to alcohol and, and drugs. Um, you know, like during my my first year at Belhaven, um, I had met my my future wife, who would also become my my, my future ex wife. But, um, I think I relied heavily on her for my self-esteem and worth once baseball was gone. Um, I was just like, kind of like a chicken with its head cut off. I had no direction. I didn't know where I was going. It was, it was basically living the day to get high or to get drunk. And you're drinking, you're using drugs, you're. Yeah. So, I mean, I wouldn't say at first that, so it was, it was mainly just alcohol for a good bit. Um, you know, I would, I would dabble with opiates if I could find them, but, uh, for the most part it was alcohol until it wasn't, <laughs> um, you know, I, after college I ended up teaching for a while. Um, the sad part about it is I, I, feel like I robbed those kids of an education because for three years I showed up hungover every single day, um, just showing movies. I mean, they really liked watching movies cause they didn't have to do any classwork. But sure. You know, after that, I, I got into the welding industry um, in a factory setting. And uh, I don't know if people, well, people that don't use or drink may not know this, but, you know, welding industry as well as just like factory setting, um, you can pretty much find whatever you want to there. And um, I started seeking and searching for other things to make me feel different. And so um, that's really when my my opiate uh, addiction really you know, took off. Gotcha.
0: And it's just, I mean, can you elaborate on that a little more? Like, you know, what that looked like?
1: Yeah. So, um, while I was there, um, at the, at the welding job, uh, I was working 12 hour, 12 hour nights, six or seven days a week. Um, probably spending maybe a hundred to $150 a day on, on just opiates, um, And that would be to make me feel a certain way during, during my work, you know, work hours. Um, And then also to help me feel a certain way, getting back to the house. And then, you know, when I woke up, I would, I would need something to, to level me out. Um, And that was just a cycle for the next year, man. It was, you know, if, if I did, if I couldn't get it, I didn't show up to work because wow. I, cause I couldn't function. Um, so it's like really taking you over. It is like at this point, alcohol is not enough. Um, once I combined the two, I had to have both together because if I drank without opiates, I felt miserable. Gotcha. Is
0: there any point at any point during all this, do you see a common denominator of why you're feeling miserable? Do you know that this is it or? Um,
1: I mean, I know it's not healthy. Uh, I mean, <laughs> sure. Uh, obviously the effects of when I don't have them should have been, you know, that <laughs> the sign for me, but, um, I think I was so lost at the time that it was, man, I was, I was just living to feel nothing. Gotcha. Um, I didn't know what route my my life was taking, and I didn't care. You know, it was it was just you know I, I figured it was you go to work, you make some money, you go home, um, and yeah, do that obviously, as long as you can. And then well, yeah, you know. obviously, me for me it was like there's a few other things going on there, but sure. Um, so yeah, I, so I I did that that job for a year, um, end up getting fired. You know, like I'm pretty sure anybody could see that coming. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, we're so, not very good at keeping jobs. No, we're good at getting them, though. Um, oh yeah. So I ended up, I ended up, I ended up getting fired from the job. Um, I started to look for for other jobs, obviously, um, because the bills still had to be paid. Um, I was still paying bills at that time. Um, <laughs> it's, an, it's an interesting <laughs> distinction to make, right? Right. We're still paying at, bills that, at the time. <laughs> at that time, I was still paying bills, um, but I ended up getting a job for a huge uh, cell phone company in in Mississippi or in the South. It's called C Spire Wireless. Okay. Um, they have really good benefits, and um, they do offer FMLA after you've been uh, with them for a year. And um, so, I always joke like. I was selling cell phone and cell phone accessories in the mall. Um, but, like, that's what I was doing. But it was, it was it was for a bigger company than people would think. And so um, I did okay for a while once I got that job. Um, I say okay. Like, I was still drinking, but I wasn't, like, popping pills. Yeah. Um, and lo and behold, six months into it probably, um, my connection from working at the factory walks through uh, through the doors. Um, and it should have been a red flag on my part. Like I didn't have real good self-awareness at the time, but it should have been a really big, big red flag that instead of feeling fear that I seen that I saw him, I felt excitement because that meant my connection. I now have access to what I really want to do. Drugs. Yeah. Drugs. (laughs) And so for the next six months, man, it was, it was just craziness. Um, I'd get an hour for lunch and he lived about 27 minutes away. So I would zoom maybe 25, maybe it's 27, an exaggeration, but I would run out to my car, like literally run, um, drive to see him 25 minutes away, pick up, you know, the pills that I, I supposedly needed. Obviously I didn't need them, but I felt like I did. Yeah. Um, then I would stop at the liquor store grab a pint. And then, I do believe I would have to find a liquor store that was attached to a convenience store because Mississippi didn't sell uh, like non-alcoholic beverages um, in the liquor store. And so yeah. it was just like, man, just like scheming to find ways to to make it back on time and still do what I need to do, um, to get high, to get drunk. Um, so this, this continued for the next six months, man, like I'm, I'm stealing money out of our account. Uh, I had actually had, when I was working at that factory, I'd actually had a rack where, um, I had gotten like a $10,000 settlement and I'm pretty sure I ate through like almost eight grand of that in, in six months, just spending money left and right on only on, I mean, on some on bills, but mainly, you know, to get what I needed to get high. And so, um, yeah. you know, I don't, I can't really say how much I was spending each day, but it was, you know, well in excess of $200 probably. And um, adds up after a while. It does, man. You'll, you'll get through your money quick, but I can remember I had just hit a year with C Spire and I, I had, was eligible for FMLA um and it was funny because I mean it's not funny but uh, I was coming back from my my dealer's house and um you know it's one of those days I just I didn't I didn't take the pills um I was going to wait till I got to work and then and then take them but I definitely you know drank up that pint really really quick and so um, I'm pulling back up to the mall. I'm almost back to the mall, and I, I cross a double yellow line, and a cop was there and end up, you know, bust the UE, um, starts coming after me, and... Uh, I pull into this little shopping center, uh, act like I was about to go into one of the stores. I hopped out of my car real quick. He told me to get back in my car very quickly. Oh, so yeah. his
0: lights are on the whole time.
1: Yeah, and so I'm just like playing stupid, like oh, like you didn't see him. Yeah. Oh, you're after me. Yeah. You know, I oh, was just going in here just yeah. to be a normal Samaritan. <laughs> wow. And, and so,
0: so he's got you on evading. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I mean, I got evading police, uh, reckless driving, resisting arrest. I, I don't really know about the resisting one, but uh, I mean, it could have been, it could have happened. But uh, <laughs> Still, I don't know about that I, one. I, I mean, I I was drunk. I don't sure. I oh, you mean, you
0: literally don't know, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, some other charges. And one of the ones that's kind of like eye widening is that one of the charges was. Um, I was charged with like, I want to say like 50 counts of open container in my, in my trunk. Um, because obviously he arrested me and went through my vehicle and all that. And I mean, that was just the place where I would hide all my empty bottles whenever I was done with them. And um, so you
0: got a bunch of, of open containers cause yeah, of that.
1: I mean, that may, maybe it wasn't 50 and I don't, I don't know exactly how many it was, but it was, it was quite a bit because that's where I'd always put them. I didn't want my wife to find them. Right. Right. Then she would know I was drinking like she didn't already know, you know. But So I got, I got booked, um, was sitting in, in County. Uh, my wife ended up, she ends up bailing me out and ended up getting a lawyer. And, uh, it's my, you know, he, he had had a sister that had dealt with addiction. Um, and he recommended me going to this treatment center there in Mississippi. And, uh, it's a 42 day treatment center. Um, so I go into it, um, not knowing like what sobriety is about. You know, there's uh, I'm scared, man. Um, all I've lived for so long now is just a life of either being drunk or high. I don't know how to like live soberly. Yeah. So, and then another fear, you know, that I know that other people go through is well, if I get sober, you know, my life is going to be boring. Sure. You know, and yeah, I mean,
0: it, you kind of get to a point where it's like, I don't even know if I want to get sober, but even if I did, like what, what does that life even look like? Right. Exactly. Like what's even waiting for me on that side. Yeah. And I know that that's something I always struggled with. It was like, there was a part of me that definitely wanted to quit. Mm -hmm. um, Because it clearly was not sustainable. Uh, But what does that, what does that even look like? What sober? Yeah. You know, and then you get in your head and you're like, why does everybody else get to drink and not me? Yeah. You know, like what, why do I have to stop? I'll just stop, and forever sounds like a long time. Why am I the one that has the problem? Yeah. Why am you I know? the one that?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Start pointing fingers. Most, most definitely. I mean, I, I went through that as well. I mean, and even after treatment, um, I wouldn't end up. This was 2015, and I didn't get sober until like 2019 for good. Yeah. Um, it was just. I got in there. Um, it was 42 days, 42 days long. And man, I always tell people, I don't need someone else to co-sign my, my BS because I can do it so well myself, (laughs) you know? And, um, and I say that because like, I fooled myself while I was there into thinking that I was actually doing it for me. Um, and it wasn't for me. It was to appease the courts. It was to, it was to, to appease my wife. It was to appease my parents. It was to appease everybody. And, you know, it wasn't for me. Yeah. So, you know, I get out and I go back to court. Uh, they always say, get you a lawyer that knows people. Um, and I found out why uh, he was able to get all the charges dropped. And it, like, I, you know, at the time I was, I was excited uh, when I should have been scared, kind of like the situation with seeing the guy at the store, you know, coming yeah. into my shop and um, because I
0: in all the wrong places.
1: Right. Well, it was just, for me, at the time, um, I needed consequences in place for my actions. That's um, yeah, so what it, I was
0: going to ask. Was like, it's like, okay, cool. The charges are being dropped, but
1: is this just further enabling you? It is. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, the lawyer is doing his job, uh, and so he's not worried about the enabling part. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so without the charges, there was no consequences for my actions, um, which made me feel like I was untouchable. Yeah. um, That I could do whatever I wanted. Um, and there was no consequences in place for my actions. And so it it was maybe like a week or two weeks after the charges got dropped, um, that I went back to doing the same thing I was doing, but going even harder Um, back to it. Yeah. So that was, I want to say 2015, uh, towards that was, yeah, 2015 is when that I do believe the charges were dropped. And so, um, a few months later, uh, my daughter was born. Um, you know, I was already back into addiction and had started dabbling in a few other things and, uh, amphetamines. Um, I wasn't, I hadn't touched the meth at that point, but you know, that will come into the picture later. And so, um, you know, that's one of my biggest regrets is that I was there when my daughter was born, but I was not present. mm you know,
0: that's powerful.
1: Yeah, was,
0: You were there, but you weren't there.
1: Yeah, I was there, but I just was not able to enjoy the moment like I should have been able to.
0: And I mean, at this point, um, now you've got a daughter,
1: mm-hmm. and that's just not enough. It's not uh, not. You mean not enough to make me want to stop, right? right. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't. Um, I was. And I say
0: that not to harp down on and bring that a whole no. reminder, but I want our he- listeners to hear that. Like there can be, you know, don't let that shame overtake you. Yeah. If that's you or if that was you, um, you're not alone in this.
1: Right. So continue on. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer your question, it, no, it, it wasn't enough to get me sober. Um, I wish it would have been, you know, I wish a lot of things would have been, um, But really the only thing that got me sober, man, was, uh, well, let me back up a little bit before, before I get there. Uh, so things just get worse. I'm going through jobs left and right. I can't keep anything. Um, you know, I ended up one day, my, my, my daughter is with my wife's sister because my wife didn't trust me enough to watch her and I can't blame her. Wow. My wife is at work. Obviously I should have been at work, but I couldn't hold down a job. Um, I couldn't go into our checking account anymore. Um, and I, I needed, I, I needed money to, to be able to do the things that I wanted to do, uh, which was buy drug and get high. So, um, and I take so much of the stuff that's in the house that we have and I take it to the pawn shop. Um, and I sell it. I use part of the money to, to buy the pills that I needed. Um, I took the rest to the casino in the hopes of being able to win the money back that I needed to get the stuff at a pawn shop to take it back to the house to put it back in place. Yeah, before she got home, man, it's just like it's insanity. Like I like it's funny when when we're in addiction, we have some of the. Stupidest ideas, but they're also like ridiculously thought out and smart at the same time. Yeah,
0: I mean, uh, the links we're willing to go, yeah, to get a fix. Oh, for sure. And like the lies and all the stuff that we will spend the time coming up with.
1: Yes, I mean,
0: my gosh. <laughs> that's
1: that's. If if I continue on the story, I I I may run across some even like crazier ideas that I had but yeah. um so I I didn't didn't win the money back um you know I ended up staging a, a robbery um into my own home I kicked in the back door called my wife and told her you know I was like hey our place got robbed and she she was not buying it um <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm sorry
1: which I should have known <laughs> I, and I even like I wrote out a detailed plan about how I was how I was gonna go through this with her um, but some of the smaller details kind of escaped me and I left the notebook paper on the counter in the kitchen so when she got home she found it and was like, you know, there was no no denying that I was the one who did it. So, um, <laughs> tell me that part again. Uh, you wrote a note. I know. I wrote out the plans oh, that you I was, wrote out the yeah, plan. I was like, kicking back door. Oh my God. Call wife. <laughs> tell her that.
0: Why did you are, need to write the plan?
1: <laughs> so I didn't forget any of the steps. Super. And she found the plan. She found it. Yeah. On the kitchen counter. Oh, um, okay. At that point. Yeah. She, she was done, man. Um, oh. She took, you know, took my daughter and, um, my daughter stuff, her stuff, moved in with her sister. And I can't blame her. You know, I have no ill will, um, towards my ex-wife. Like she's an amazing woman. Yeah. Um, but you know, but you did
0: yeah. stage a false We robbery. can only
1: take so much. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, there comes to a point, I mean, all laughing aside, I'm sorry. That really just, that was yeah, fun. No, you're not the only one. <laughs> yeah. I, I can imagine. I've known you for years now and I've never heard that story. I don't know how, um, but our loved ones, you know, they do get to a point where it's enough. Yeah. And that, and that, and sometimes loving us means getting away from us
1: Yeah. and putting that boundary up. Oh, for sure. I mean, she had to, man. Um, I was destroying our lives. Uh, and there's was, a child involved now. Yeah. It wasn't just like, it wasn't just about me at this point. It was about our daughter and what was best for her and. Um, you know, looking back on it, I can now see that, you know, she did the best thing that she could have yeah. was to leave me. Um, so, you know, a few weeks go by, uh, granted, I have not paid the mortgage in about a year. Um, goodness. And what happens when, when you don't do that is they, um, they come take your house from you. Yeah. Generally. It's, yeah. <laughs> That's the, that was the next step. I got to notice that, uh, my house had been bought. Um, for those
0: of, yeah. For those of you who are you know, out there wondering, oh yeah, you know, if I don't pay my mortgage, what's going to happen? There's the answer. They come yeah. and take your house.
1: They will. They, at first they don't take your house. They'll put it up, uh, for sell. I think it's a short sell or something like that. Okay. Um, so somebody bought it. Um, He was really nice, man. Uh, He could have just kicked me out right away, but he gave me a couple weeks to, to get what I needed to get out of there. Um, Are you at the house alone? Yeah, I'm at the house by myself at this point. And so I called my parents. It was really the only option I had. Um, And I got what I could put into my car, um, said goodbye to my daughter, uh, my soon to be ex-wife and uh, headed back to Oklahoma city. Um, there wasn't really a whole lot of thought behind it. It was just, I didn't know what to do. Um, yeah. and that's, that's the thing that I run into with, with people who are struggling with addiction is they need guidance, Yeah. but it always seems like when we're in our deepest moment, um, nobody seems to know how to help us or how to guide us to where, we need to get to like get our lives back. And so that's why I take
0: it's uncharted territory for everybody.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's why I, I love what I do is that I get to help people, you know, into that journey of recovery and get out of the, the depths and traps of addiction, man. Um, Cause I've lived it for 15 years. It's miserable. Yeah. But uh, I moved back to my parents home in Oklahoma city. And this was late 2016 at this point. Um, you know, I felt like the world hated me. Nobody loved me. And so, um, you know, why not do some harder stuff Uh, at this point? Who cares? Um, and so that's when I first tried meth and I'll always joke, like when I go to treatment centers with the people I know that have used it, like there's a running joke, like you don't, your life doesn't get bad right away. It actually you get very, very productive. You know, when you don't sleep, you you should be able to get a lot of stuff done. But, uh, for the first six months, it wasn't so bad. Um, I felt like I was really productive. I had all this energy, uh, yada, yada, yada. But then man, out of nowhere, uh, I just like, I hit this wall and like, and I go into psychosis. And so for the next like two and a half years, I would be in and out of psychosis. And, um, man, like at first, you know that you're going crazy. Um, but there's this like certain point where, uh, it just blends together and it's not crazy anymore. You're not going crazy anymore. Like you're living a reality that nobody else yeah. can experience because they're not using drugs.
0: Yeah. Know? Cause they're not on a, a right. methamphetamine spender.
1: Yeah, of course. But, um, so, yeah, for the next two and a half years, uh, I would be in and out of psychosis. I would try to get sober. Um, I think I had eight months at one point. Um, you know, there's some contradiction or controversy over what I may say. Uh, you know, when I say sober, sober now means abstinence from everything. Yeah. At that point, I was going through an outpatient service where I was, um, you know, they, they put me on Suboxone and um, uh, and I'm not here to like judge somebody or tell, you know, say this way or that way for me, abstinence is the only way, um, to stay sober, uh, because I, I didn't last on suboxone. Um, and the, the urge to still use was there. Yeah. It just kind of took it away a little bit until it didn't. Gotcha. Um, so I had, I mean, eight months on suboxone, I, I guess you could say I was, I was sober, but, but not really. Yeah, but not really. Um, in my opinion, you know, and, so there was that. So that was one of the times where I would get my mental faculties back a little bit. Um, then I went back out, you know, started using like meth became my, my drug of choice. Like alcohol and opiates was not really something I, I needed anymore because the high with meth was so high or was so intense. And you know, yeah. Real. There was, yeah, there was nothing that can compare to it. And so, um, I'm finally, <laughs> I'm living back on my parents again. Uh, this was, 2018 and, um, I didn't have a, I didn't have a vehicle. Uh, I didn't have a job. Um, I didn't really have, I didn't have anything, man, but, uh, <laughs> I would find ways to get enough money to buy, to buy meth. And, um, so I was on this, this psychosis, this psychosis kick and I'm walking around the city of Moore and, uh, there's a, I come up to a Creek, um, you know, I could have gone down and then back up and been fine. It wasn't like anything crazy and it wouldn't have taken me that much time. But, uh, for some reason, like I was hearing voices and they were telling me to hurry up. And so I tried to jump over the Creek and I landed like 10 feet down on a boulder and like broke both my legs. Um, so I'm going through this, you know, when I get to the hospital, it's funny. Um, I felt kind of like when you get arrested sometime, or sometimes, sometimes, um, like you, those
0: times when you get arrested, yeah, yeah, you
1: know, when you get arrested, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like, sometimes you feel that sense of relief, like finally it's over, you know? Yeah. And so when I got to the hospital, I was like, finally, it's over. I don't have to use meth anymore. And, um, I'd forgotten that I'd broke my legs. And so they put me on opiates again. I was like, Oh, cool. Thanks. Uh, my main drug of choice, uh, that I started with. So it was just like this in and out, like changing one drug for another. Um, and I finally had gone, you know, I was, I was living at home, uh, with my parents. I was in a wheelchair, uh, went from a wheelchair to, you know, walking boots and crutches. And I can remember, uh, going into the doctor's office and when I was in walking boots and crutches. And, uh, I told him, I was like, you have got to cut me off. Like you cannot p- keep on prescribing me these opiates because I take them, I take a 30 day supply in two days and then I'm going through withdrawal like the rest of the time. Um, and so I was like, this is, this isn't healthy for me and I didn't have a withdrawal plan in place. And so, yeah. um, man, like so I started thinking, I was like, Oh, well, I know what will take the withdrawal symptoms away and it's meth. Meth. Yeah. And so I hit my, my old dealer again. Um, and it went for the next five months. It was probably like the, the deepest psychosis that I've been in. Um, I'm not going to go into like the details of it because I mean, yeah, each person's experience is different, but yeah. I can say like, it was, it was a, it was a bad experience, but it was also like, there was one highlight in it, man. Um, I was so low, uh, so lost, so deep off into it. Um, that I, I really, I was hoping that I could take enough to just not wake up. If I ever did fall asleep, um, I wasn't going to kill myself, but I just kept on praying not to wake up. But, you know, while I was, off in this psychosis. I I felt like, you know, uh, God was speaking to me and that was the first time I'd, I'd, I'd ever heard his voice. You know, I'd been raised in the church. Um, but I don't, I don't think I'd ever experienced spirituality until I was at my lowest point. And, you know, I, I just kept on having these, these visions and hearing things like that was saying that, like I was going to hell, um, that, I mean, one of this next one's funny, like the rapture had happened and I was left behind because I was a piece of crap, uh, drug addict and all this stuff. And so I like, get weighed very, very heavily on me, um, to think that like I was living in the apocalypse pretty much. And, and you know, towards the end, uh, I started, at started hearing God's voice and it was like just two recurring, um, uh, phrases and it was, uh, Matthew, I love you and Matthew, I have not forsaken you. Wow. Yeah.
0: And so at what point, you know, what leads you to hope was alive through all this?
1: Yeah. So, um, Probably a year. So this, so this experience that I'm telling you about with hearing God was happening in right around March, April of, of two of 2019. Yeah. Um, I, probably a year before that I had heard about hope was alive through, um, a gentleman that had gone through the program. Uh, I went and saw his mom, she's a therapist and she, you know, she had told me, about hope is alive in the program and what it had done for her son. But, um, I just wasn't ready at the time. Um, I still had more, more research to do. Yeah. You know, the research is a term for still using, yeah. by the way, <laughs> <laughs> for the audience. Yeah. That's for our listeners <laughs> out there. Yeah. So, um, I think it was God just planting that seed in my, in my brain that there is an option. Um, there's a higher calling for you, uh, but, you know, you got to to make that choice. And I just sure. I wasn't ready. And so um, I had actually I ended up getting arrested in 2019. Um, and I'm sitting in county jail uh, going through all the things that I'm okay with. Like, I mean, it's going to sound crappy, but uh, I was okay with... Being homeless. I was okay with not having any, having any friends. I was okay with not having a relationship with my daughter, my parents, having no job, no car, no money. And then like the one thing that I got to that I was not okay with was, um, losing my freedom to this addiction. And, you know, luckily, um, by the grace of God, uh, I was given an option to go to a 90 day treatment center. Um, while I was there, there was guys that came out to to the place um, and they started sharing uh, about what Hope is Alive had done for their lives. And about the accountability, the structure, the faith aspect of it. And it was all so attractive. Um, you know, I was I was just starting on this journey with God. Um, and I wanted to continue it. But I also know that um, I had done what I wanted for so long that I needed, definitely needed the structure. And I needed people to hold me accountable for what I'm supposed to be doing, what I signed up to do. Um And that was, that was, man, that was, that was my sign. I was like, this is a place that I want to be. This is where I'm going to gain my life back, you know? And that's, that's, it was July of 2019. I got um, discharged from treatment, went straight to the courts to face my charges, (laughs) Uh, got put on probation that day. And from there went straight to uh, one of the homes in Tulsa. Wow. Yeah.
0: Quite the journey to, you know, what leads us to where you are today. For sure. Hope was a live graduate and hope as a live staff member. Now you're the person bringing people in the door.
1: I'm, I'm one of them. Or one of them. Yeah.
0: <laughs> not, <laughs> not the only one. Not the only but. one. Yeah. But what an incredible journey to go on. Yeah. And if you're out there listening and this is you, or this is someone that you love, you know, there is hope. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. And it doesn't always it won't always end the same as Matthew's story or Deanna's or Blake or anybody else we've had on here recently, but there is another path. It doesn't have to be that way. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today, bro. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure to talk to you. One of my closest friends. One of my oldest friends at this point. Yeah? (laughs) (laughs) It's wild how the years fly. If this is your first time listening to the Hope Dealers podcast, thank you so much. And please be sure to like, subscribe, share this with someone who needs to hear it. We really appreciate everyone sticking with us. See you later. This has been the Hope Dealers podcast. a new home for a while. Let me feel alive. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hope Dealers podcast. If you or someone you know needs to get in touch with Hope is Alive, or maybe you just want some more information, please visit hopeisalive.net or call 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. Oh, I
1: feel, I feel, I feel.